I have a lot of GMs reach out to me saying like it totally changed the way they prepare their game. So they prepare yeah. and they feel more confident because every time, you know, the players do something, they can rely on drawing a card and having something interesting to say. Howdy friends. Today I sit down with Chris Vanderlinden, the founder and CEO of Loresmith, which is a uh, company that um, has now got their 10th Kickstarter out uh, with a focus on role-playing game accessories and uh, aids. It was fascinating to see him take the journey from a hobby to an idea to now a successful gaming company putting out its 10th Kickstarter. Chris was very honest about what was tough about it, some of the tough decisions and some of the chances he took. I think you'll find it particularly interesting how he identifies and manages risk. I think any gamer is going to find it fascinating to have the curtain pulled aside and to see really how the whole process works. I'm a big fan of Loresmith and their products, and uh, I really enjoyed my time with Chris, and I think you will too. Enjoy. Playing a tabletop strategy game allows you to unplug and test your skills against friends. Every week, Third Floor Wars delivers useful strategies, discussions, battle reports, and reviews to tabletop games like Malifaux. If you want to get better at the games you already play or discover the games other people are playing, you are in the right place. Craig and Ray welcome you to the Third Floor and the Tabletop Talk Broadcast. Craig here on the third floor. Now, over the past six months, I rediscovered my love of role-playing games. I currently run several games online for uh, a couple different groups. And if you've been listening to the show, you know I've also got a group that I do live um, at uh, the campsite twice a year. And um, it's really uh, become something that has helped fill the gap um, that has been left in not being able to play tabletop mini games um, as much as I love. But in the process of um, kind of trying to enhance the online um, experience and playing online, I came across uh, a company called Loresmith. And the reason I first came across them is they had some really nice map assets that I could bring into my virtual tabletops to kind of enhance that experience. Um, I then started digging in more and more um, into what uh, they were creating, and uh, I found it very interesting. So unfortunately for them, I tracked down both the CEO and the founder, Chris Vanderlinden, and I've talked him to come on the show. So Chris lives in a small town in the Netherlands with his wife and his daughters. He's got a background in graphic design, photography, and marketing, and he co-founded several startups over the past 15 years. Now, he's worked with the Cartoon Network, Warner Brothers, Ubisoft, uh, like Electronic Arts, to name a few, but three, four years ago, two years ago, he put all of his attention and time into this Loresmith company. So, Chris, welcome to the third floor. Hey, welcome. Thanks for having me. So, Chris, um, there was a day where you had no idea what role playing was. A day where you had no idea what little miniatures and you know uh, playing uh, miniature games were. And then there was a day where you did know. And I'd like to go back there. So talk to me how you first came across and discovered tabletop gaming. Sure. Yeah, that's a great question. I think it, for me, it all started in in a local hobby store. Um, they had a basement, like I imagine many of them do. Uh, so the 
you know, the ground level was just comic books and, and board games, you know, the typical stuff. But then the basement, that that's where, well, the, the real, uh, <laughs> the big nerds were kind of hanging out. And I wandered in there and that's how I discovered uh, a tabletop board gaming that they had this huge table with terrain scenery on it, uh, a vast army of uh, goblins fighting, I don't know, beast men or whatever. And I was like, whoa, that, that looks very cool. And um, at the time, I think it was, I don't know, 15, 16. I really didn't have real big money to spend. <laughs> so I, I kind of discovered that the wargaming, uh, the Warhammer stuff was pretty expensive for me at the time. Um, but I found it really fascinating just you know, from from the box cover artwork, you know, with the space marines duking it out, um, and uh, that was great. And at the at the same comic store, they had a whole um, category section where where they had the Dungeons and Dragons books. So, right. just paging through those, and again being drawn by the cover artworks, uh, it looked really fascinating. And um, I know we we quite quickly. With a bunch of friends, were like, "Yeah, we should play this," but we we really didn't have any clue as to how <laughs> it really worked. You know, even with the rules laid out in the books, it was still pretty complex for for us new guys. Sure, but we did have a lot of fun with it. So, I especially remember playing our first quote unquote sessions, and then like three hours in, as a dungeon master, I realized. Oh, okay, maybe I should roll some dice at one point. But we <laughs> we were having so much fun just narrating out the stories and what people were doing, but and we totally forgot about the rules and the dice rolling. <laughs> well, I, I, that is something that uh, I, I think that uh, when we talk about giving advice for game masters often on here on the show, it's one of the things we tell tell people is don't let the dice get in the way of the story. Don't let the rules get in the way of the story. Uh, unwittingly, you were doing that right out of the gate um, and maybe forgetting rules existed altogether. <laughs> yeah, we were just having so much fun with the story. You know, you get transported to that uh, imaginary world. And uh, yeah, it was like. You know, gradually we did use the rules more and more, of course, sure. and we, we tried to to play it for real. But I, I do remember that those first sessions where it was all about the story. And um, uh, I don't know, uh, uh, good memories. So that's primary school, right? You're 16, 14, 15, 16 years old. Um, yeah. Talk to me about what happens to you as a gamer later. So as you become uh, you know, a young adult, you enter the workforce, um, Does uh, did you maintain gaming that whole time? Or for a lot of people, they take a break from gaming as they you know become an adult and then maybe find it later. Right. Yeah, we did for a very long time, I think, for well, like 10 years, at least we did keep up our weekly D&D session and um, the group of friends gradually mutated to include more like colleagues from work mm -hmm. uh, who had an interest in D Dungeons and Dragons. And uh, yeah, we did for, for a long time. We did our weekly sessions and it was like this mainstay thing and we didn't have any trouble keeping the group together or needing to work hard for people to show up. It was just like, yeah, this is what we do every week, uh, same night. And um, we had some fairly long-running campaigns as well. Um, so, and uh, at, 
at least at that time, I also did play uh, Warhammer uh, quite a bit. I painted like tons and tons of miniatures. <laughs> um, yeah, so I think D&D got less when I was about, I don't know, 25, 30 years. That's when I co-founded several startups. And in the beginning, we were really green. But at one point, things got more and more serious involving uh, investment, shareholdership, and all that thing. And at that time, bit running business became so um, so time-consuming and yeah. so all-encompassing. I kind of, the hobby thing kind of fell away for a bit. So a question for you, for, the, for these startups and, uh, you know, all the companies that we listed during your intro, Cartoon Network, Electronic Arts, was this a, you in a creative capacity, have you always professionally been a creative person? Yeah, very much. I would like to say that I'm foremost a creative guy. I like to paint. Um, I'm a musician. I play drums. I, I've been, always been in, in bands and on a stage. So I like to draw. There's basically everything a creative I really enjoy doing, whether it's painting miniatures or uh, making abstract paintings. I, I just enjoy the, I don't know, like a cathartic just expressing yourself that in, in a sense, I need to feed that monster inside of me and always create. Um, with the, uh, with the past companies I've co-founded, um, it became much more of a man management function because of, I was one of the co-founders and shareholders. I was more in meetings than it was uh, much of a creative thing. Right. Um, but I did learn a lot from it. So many of the skills I picked up, over those 10 plus years served me very well now because that's where where I learned really, you know, what it takes to, to take something from an idea and a group of friends and make it into a functional company, um, how to plan, how to project manage, how to set budgets, how to work with, I don't know, external people, yeah. how to work with big, big companies like Warner Brothers and... Um, it was in the in the online gaming scene, PC gaming scene, and uh, with a company prior to that, we were really into the um, MMO scene. Mm -hmm. So, um, and that's that's where I learned a lot of the business sensibilities. So, I, I would like to say the first part of my life, I really lived the creative stuff, and I was learning all about that: Photoshop, InDesign, photography, and then the later part. I, that's where, where, where I really discovered um, I wanted to be an entrepreneur as well. And um, I learned it by uh, lots of ups and downs, lots of failures and, <laughs> small, and small successes. Yeah. Now, so what I'd be interested then is when does this next phase happen, uh, Chris? So uh, from my understanding, the first official Loresmith product was a, a module, right? A gaming, uh, a gaming module, an adventure. Um, was that something that, um, you know, you're thinking, boy, this is this is something that I just want to throw out there into the ether and see if people like it? Or was the intent to, from the beginning to say, you know, I think I can combine my love of gaming and my business acumen and my creativity and maybe start, you know, pu putting out my own products? Um, that, that's a great question. Uh, so the answer is no. I, from the beginning, I didn't come into this with the idea, like, I'm going to create Dungeons and Dragons stuff and make a living out of it. Uh, the Clause of Madness is, let me quickly look that up. It's 
from 2016. And at that time, I was still uh, full on working with my other company. And it was more like a hobby thing. Um, like I said earlier, there's always this inner drive for me where I want to create. And I think more out of a feeling of nostalgia combined with <laughs> wanting to see if I could do something like that. You know, the idea came to mind like, okay, I want to try and do an adventure module like the ones that I loved playing, right. you know, back when we were playing, like the Forge of Fury, the Sunless Citadel, um, you know, Shadowdale Adventures. <laughs> so I was really trying to see, challenge myself, you know, can I do an adventure module? And I actually, you know, came up with the story and did the writing for it, which turned out to be very painful because... Um, I'm not really a writer, so it right. took a long time, and I will fi find it very frustrating. Well, that's that's very interesting, Chris. And we're gonna uh, what I want to do is uh, when we get back from this first break, I want to talk a little bit about that journey um, from the hey, you know what? I wonder if I can write a module. I'm feeling kind of nostalgic, and I want to put that into um, now. I'm on uh, boy, what is your third, fourth, fifth Kickstarter now? Um, uh, it's actually the 10th Kickstarter. Unbelievable. <laughs> yeah, it, it's incredible. And they've been very successful. And um, uh, you've gotten quite a name for yourself. So we're going to learn what that journey is. So um, what my hope is with Chris is I really want to get an understanding of what it's like to run and start a company that, that's in the gaming industry. Um, find out the realities um, of it, what's great about it, what, uh, what are things that uh, you may not realize um, if you're thinking of going into um uh, into it yourself. I also want to talk about what is being created because what is very interesting if with Loresmith is that uh, the products are pretty much system agnostic and they're accessories to enhance the game. And I really want to kind of understand from Chris um, where that comes from, uh, wh whether that's a, a need that obviously he identified or whether it kind of fell into his lap. So we'll take a quick break. We'll be right back. Howdy friends, Craig here. Nothing makes Malifaux easier than having the right tools. Here at the third floor, we love all the licensed Malifaux goodies from Custom Meeple. Not only are they helping support this podcast, they sell custom-made weird licensed tokens and terrain. They sell it all. Crew boxes, terrain, markers, tokens, and even a 3x3 full Malifaux board. Custom Meeple sells a complete M3E token set covering every marker and token you need to play. Custom Meeple are the source for the official accessories for Malifaux. Everything is designed by hand and authorized by Weird Games. Check them out at custommeeple.com, that's with one M, or follow the link in the show notes. Up your Malifaux game and be sure to tell them Craig from the third floor sent you. If you use the promo code third floor friend, all one word, T-H-I-R-D-F-L-O-O-R-F-R-I-E-N-D, you'll get a 5% discount and help support the podcast. It's valid on everything except retail products and playmats. You know, I um, create content in the industry. Um, by no means is this a um, something that is a business for me at this point. Right now, I'm happy if I break even um, with all of the uh, Third Floor Wars endeavors. Um, but Chris has taken his journey um, in the gaming industry to a whole new level. So, Chris, we before the break, we talked about, you know, 
it sounded like you wanted to challenge yourself a little bit, right? To see um, if you could make create a module, uh, exercise some skill sets that you were not familiar with. You said the writing was a big challenge um, yeah. for you. Yeah, that's true. So. Yeah. You put the you put the module out there. Um, what happens? Do you get feedback on it? Um, does it just does it make you want to do more? Talk to me once once the thing once that first module was out in the wild. What I remember from it is going from the idea to actual finishing. Um, that really, I found it very, very difficult. And it was because somebody else, um, an online friend, uh, Benoit, um, he was also creating role-playing stuff. And he was actually motivating me, like, dude, at least finish it. You know, you started it. um, And I know the, the writing took much longer. And it's rewrite after rewrite and edit and polishing. And still you find more issues with it. And I really discovered like, wow, gee, uh, you know, I thought I had a fun idea for a story, but then taking it all the way to, you know, a published module with layout, illustrations, um, statistics blocks, and, you know, the whole thing that was much harder than I thought it was going to be. And if it wasn't for uh, Benoit to, to, to motivate me to finish it, you know, maybe Lore Smith wasn't wasn't here because mm-hmm. the funny thing that when I did end up, ended up finishing and publishing it on drive through RPG was that it, it quite, it got quite good praise. Um, it sold quite decently. You know, I, I had no expectations, but it made a couple of hundred dollars dollars every month, which was, uh, again, also a surprise for me because, um, I thought it was just a thing that I wanted to finish. I had no ambition with it. And then all of a sudden people started emailing like, Hey, we love it. It's a great, great campaign starter. Are you going to, you know, follow up with a sequel to the story? We, we want to know how it ends up. <laughs> and that was like an eye opener. I was, I, bet. You know, um, I didn't, I really didn't expect it. So at that time, really um, there was no, you know, I came up with the name Lore Smith just so there was a publisher tag on it. So it was not like written by Chris Bender Linden and published by Chris. So I kind of came up with, you know, at that point, a fictional publishing company. Sure. One title under its belt. And it was all by the same person. So and then afterwards, I started thinking, well, yeah, OK, I, I could do a second adventure, you know, uh, why not? But still. I, I didn't see it as a company at all. Uh, yeah, in those early days. Yeah, the reality of of taking projects to their fruition is is um, it can be be a, a bit of an ice bath. Um, and you know, the fun part is the beginning parts, and so many creative endeavors. Um, yeah, yeah, very and, true. And, yeah. And, and closing things out and finishing things up and putting periods at the ends of sentences and, and putting pencils down and sending things off to printers and stuff like that. Um, you know, it, I, I, I get asked a lot by people, you know, do you have any advice for how to, you know, get into the industry or get started? <laughs> and my single piece of advice is start, just go do it. You know, if you're think, thinking about it, you know, why not just get going? And then, you know, 
at least finish something because Correct. the only real experience comes from having that idea, starting it, and then seeing it through all the way to completion. And that's giving yourself the opportunity to learn not only how to begin something, but also all of the other steps afterward, you know, editing process, uh, doing layout work, what it's like to commission an illustrator to do work, um, you know, getting it published on drive-thru or the DMs Guild. And if you never finish it, you'll never give yourself the opportunity to also learn all of the other steps that come after it. So, you know, that's always my, my single most important piece of advice to people asking about that stuff is just at least finish it. Even if you think it's crap, you know, just learn. It's fantastic advice, Chris, and for several reasons. One, we now live in a day and age where you have no excuse not being able to create and start and finish any type of project. Um, everything's out there. There's, uh, if you don't understand how to do something, that is that is something that you've self-imposed because every resource exists to learn anything in the world that you want to learn now. Um, I give the same advice when people reach out to me about podcasts. They're like, you know, well, you know, I'm thinking of starting a podcast. I'm like, great, get a mic, go, start doing it. You know, they're like, well, what software should I buy? Don't buy any software. Things are so cheap these days. I mean, exactly. you can get a website hosted for near to nothing. Yep. Um, the kind of microphones that, you know, we are now using, they used to be exclusive to high-end studios. Now you can get them uh, China made for, mm-hmm. you know, a couple of bucks and they sound pretty damn decent. So, you know, there's really no barrier to just go out and do it. Exactly. And you, and you learn the complete cycle of things. And I think what's important about that is something that you brought up, which is um, not all of it's fun. Sitting here and talking to people in the industry, I love this part, <laughs> right? The same way I'm sure you think, you know, dreaming up the ideas and the stories and, and the concepts is great. But, uh, you know, editing this episode, which I'm going to do tonight, I'm really not looking forward to. No offense, but I'm going to be spending, you know, an hour and a half with you today, Chris, and three and a half hours listening to you over and over again later on tonight. Um, and I would imagine it's the same thing, right? Looking at the story over and over again um, and, and kind of breaking through that. So you, I, uh, I see that we then create a second module, right? Um, and I assume that goes well uh, based off of what happens there. I'd like to learn when things change, though. So at what point did you stop trying to sell stories and move to something else? What was the first next thing? Well, I think around the time that I did the sequel, the uh, Whispers from the Void Adventure, which is just a direct follow-up from the Claws of Madness, um, around that time, I was thinking like, okay, so this stuff is selling, um, but I didn't particularly enjoy working with writers. I mean, I like working with writers, but just the, the notion of writing, which is a very time consuming and very scrutinizing process that I didn't really like. So I started to think like, okay, what else aside from products that involve writing, what else could I do and make money with? So Mm -hmm. I'm a graphics designer. I like Photoshopping stuff. So I was like, okay, map artwork. So let's make uh, modular map sets. And for at least a year, I think I cranked out like 13 map packs and I I enjoyed doing it so much. And they turned out to sell pretty decently, um, more than the adventure modules were doing. (laughs) Yeah. And um, so that, again, was like this little 
hint of like, oh, okay, so if I'm looking at this more like a businessman instead of a creative guy, you know, I should stop doing adventure modules and maybe focus on um, map packs because they're much easier to do. There's no upfront investment. You know, I don't need to hire a writer. There's right. no payment for cover artwork, editing, uh, manufacturing. Um, I just create the digital images and I can sell it right away. So commercially, it made much more sense for the business. Yeah. Um, so that was li- like this little inkling in the back of my mind going like, ah, aha, right. But the funny thing is at that time, I was still working at my, let's say, real company with 25 staff and, you know, the whole thing. And I was really used to thinking like, like an entrepreneur and a businessman with all of that stuff. But when it came to my own RPG stuff, I wasn't really looking at it like a business. So, and I didn't make decisions like a, like an entrepreneur. I just did what I thought was fun, what I like doing and not making decisions based on what is smart for the company. Because again, all all the while in that early phase, I, I didn't really see Lorsmith as a company. It was sure. still very much a hobby thing that generated a little cash, you know? Yeah. And what's neat about those map, and by the way, I, I have all of them. That's a, again, as I mentioned in the intro where uh, where I first found you, they're, they're absolutely outstanding. And the versatility of them um, was a little bit of ahead of its time, to be quite frank. There's, I've seen several since um, that, that have taken several of your ideas yeah. um, and, and really built on them. But um, I'd be curious to know what drove the next map pack. So you finish up the first one, you put it out there again in the ether and you get feedback on it and sells. Um, are you still at the point where you're, you're taking in impact and go, you know, you know, boy, I'd really love a jungle one. And you go, okay, well, let's do that. Or yeah. is it, or is it Chris wants to make a jungle pack? So that's what we're going to do. Yeah. A lot of that was just driven by what I thought was fun to do. And, you know, with, with every product, the, f- the first one you make like a TV show, it's kind of like the pilot. So you're everything you're doing, you're figuring out for the first time. And with the map packs, it was pretty much the same. So I I took a long time to to configure my Photoshop and to set up the files in a way and the workflow so that it would be easy to do to then do more of them. Right. And it it got to the point where I found this really interesting way of working with layers, and then I could um, I use uh, pattern overlays on a Photoshop layer. This is going to be very technical, but but basically you're not painting something, but you're you're painting like uh, any color really, and everywhere where that color is, Photoshop superimposes the pattern, and that nice. pattern could be like a tiling floor, or it could be uh, dust, or cobwebs, or whatever. And I had like ten or fifteen layers, and I could just like a Bob Ross paint a little floor tile here. And because all of the the patterns were made to tile seamlessly on the same grid, I could then blend and, you know, just flow from one pattern into the other and it would all work together. So once I had that figured out, it was pretty easy to do, you know, variations of dungeons or apply the same thing to forests or caves and mm-hmm. um, I think the hardest part was because it's so detailed 
and so photorealistic, making it tile seamlessly, that that was always the biggest challenge because most tiling map sets that you see have very sort of simplistic look and feel, and that makes it easier to have no seam lines where the next right. tile begins. And with my you know heavily textured and photographic stuff, that was always the big challenge. And um, but yeah, I think I sort of pull it off. And but yeah, the, the first one takes the most time. It's the same with with my books and card products. And then once once that's established, you know, the second and the third one is a little bit easier every time to develop. So you are producing several of these packs um, and they're getting easier because you're getting better. Um, you're putting you're getting a little bit more assembly line um, in the process, yeah. um, building and learning after each one. Um, at what point do the sales from the modules, from the map packs start making you go, well, hold on a second. Like this, this could be something. What, what, does that happen now or does it happen later? I think it's still later. <laughs> <laughs> okay. So let's like talk about a- next after the map packs then. So what's the next project? This feels like such a cliffhanger. Well, um, <laughs> by the time I had like 10 map packs and I figured out, you know, um, I could sell them in, in multiple places. So you can sell them on drive through on Roll20, Arc and yep. Forge, you know. I, I realized that once you have your digital product or, you know, physical product is more difficult, but with the digital products, it was really easy to start selling them in more places. And then when you have more of them, it kind of escalates and it generated quite a bit of revenue. So there have been months at that time where I was telling my wife, like, gee, you know, I should, maybe I should only be doing this and nothing else, but because this is very fast to create, I could probably do one new set every month. And, um, but I also kind of, I'm a creative guy that likes to challenge himself. And so I didn't want to be stuck with just creating map packs and being solely dependent on it because the, the, the business side of my brain was telling me like, if you're, you're betting everything on one horse and the marketplace changes or people's interests change or yep. a competitor steps in, you know, maybe you're done in an instant. So I, that's when I started to think, you know, I do want to d- diversify. Um, so I think that the big catalyst really has been um, the Remarkable Inns Kickstarter. So it, it's an interesting story because people um, – I now know it's quite a successful book. It sprouted many people copying the the concept. Books about taverns and you know it's nothing new, but I really noticed a lot of sort of um yeah, copycats if you will. Sure. sprout up after that. Um and it I think uh it recently passed 10,000 units sold. Um and the Kickstarter, I had done Kickstarters before for Claws of Madness <clears throat> and uh, and a few others. and But those did like 5,000, 6,000. And then all of a sudden, Remarkable Inns came, came along and it did 30,000. Right. And I was like, oh, okay, so I'm onto something here. So I thought it was just a funny, quirky book title, like Remarkable Inns and Their Drinks. Um, it was like this tongue in cheek kind of not too serious title. 
And I thought it would be fun to do a book about that. And then all of a sudden it turns out that people really loved it. Um, and that, that really was the turning point because then I was like, okay, so adventure modules have only, you know, sold so much. I reached a little bit more success with the modular map packs, but, you know, also not enough to sustain my family to pay the monthly bills, not nearly yep. enough. And then Remarkable Inns, the Kickstarter at least, suddenly showed me like, oh, okay, so maybe maybe this could turn into a business. So I'd be curious, um, and I want to kind of learn the whole process with Remarkable Inns, but let's start off with Remarkable Inns does not exist at all, right? So at some point, you're sitting somewhere having a conversation either with somebody or yourself, and and the idea pops in there. What was the, what was the initial seed? Was it the title? Was it uh, uh, something content wise? Where did the initial seed get planted? The idea all started for me again with maybe a little bit of nostalgia. I, I really like the, uh, the old Volo guides. So the Volo guide to the North, Volo guide to wherever. Yeah. And it was always told from a perspective of the character Volo on his travels and then he chronicled you know the places he'd been to the people he's met and i really like that concept uh, again it's not new other people have done it and i thought well that's cool you know what if there's this one person that has gone around the world seen it all and he noted like all of his favorite taverns and pubs and whatnot so and the title really was the first thing. So I had this notion of, you know, it could be something like the Volo Guides, this retro-y, you know, I'll have black and white illustrations to, to, to really drive home that, that retro feeling. And the title was all I had in the beginning. There was nothing written yet. And I... I posted it together with the cover artwork. So I had cover artwork done and I had the title. Um, and I already immediately got very, very cool responses to it. Like they, they liked the quirkiness of the title. They were like, yeah, you know, I wonder what it's going to be about. So <laughs> I already had a small hunch that I was onto something, but at, at that time, nothing was written yet. So I still, needed to then actually come up with what would be in the book. You know, what's it going to be about? What style is it going to be serious, funny? Um, you know, how many pages? What's the illustration style going to be? You know, so sure. all of that was um, not there yet. So the day the, kick, the Kickstarter launches, what decisions had been made? What had been created up at that, uh, at the time of launch? Yeah. So we did a little bit of writing with the the main writer, Greg. Um, he's fantastic, by the way. Um, so I think we came up with like a 10 or 15 potential, like a, a broad range of tavern concepts. So we were thinking about make, you know, having something uh, like a cliche, a stereotypical tavern and one underwater and one in the desert. And so we tried to come up with, with a broad range and he just started writing. And mm -hmm. a lot of the things that are now sort of what I consider the format of the book, 
that a lot of them originated with him just providing it to me. So he threw in NPCs a certain way, and we came up with the concept of including rumors or small story hooks, like the beginnings of an adventure. And a lot of that um, sort of naturally came through his writing. Then I had um, uh, a friend of mine, Natasha, which makes this beautiful pencil artwork, um, draw up some first illustrations so I could put together those those sort of mock-up images of what the product would look like. And I think we had maybe like 10 pages of writing, a couple of illustrations. I did a graphic design so the pages looked good. We had the cover artwork made. Um, so like the bare minimum to show off something for for a Kickstarter. And and for example, those illustrations, the pencil artwork, that that's interesting because I want on one hand, I wanted to fulfill that retro look right. um, to sort of get that retro thing. But it was also a budget question. I knew I wouldn't have the funds to fill an entire book with full color artwork. So I tried to find a sort of creative way to work myself, you know, to, to stay within my budget and still deliver something that's cool. And then afterwards, you know, I see other companies, you know, <laughs> doing the same pencil art style and, and copying that look, which is very funny because for me, it was also very much a budget thing. Yeah, it was a necessity thing. Yeah. And then it turns out to be something that people take note of and are like, oh, okay, that that looks cool. We're going to do that as well. It, That's it's very cool. funny to me. So I've talked to a few people that have done Kickstarters, Chris. And one of the things that I've always found interesting is I've discovered, and I don't know if this is true for you or not. We'll find out. Um, they put the, they launched the Kickstarter, which becomes really the first time the product is exposed to a larger audience. And from launch day of the Kickstarter to end of production delivery, I've talked to enough people that the product changes. And sometimes it changes just a little bit, or sometimes it goes through some major changes. Did that happen with 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 the taverns and inns? Did did the, from launch day to finish? What was the um what was the evolution that may have occurred? Oh yeah, it changed a lot. I mean, and this again really ties into why it's so important to take something from idea to finishing, because right. ideas always look fantastic. You know, in your mind. You can already see it fully fleshed out, but that's not the case. You know, an idea is like a dream. And when you start making something, you you discover like, oh, okay, in reality, you know, this doesn't work or this game mechanic, it's not fun as I, you know, as I saw it in my head. So, and with a book like this, I start out with, you know, a broad vision, a scope, a direction, and then when you actually start writing, start putting things together, you discover what works, uh, what you're missing, what doesn't work, what's just plain boring. And right. then you start to make changes. And again, with every every first product, there's a lot of iteration. There's, at least in my case, there's a lot of box, boxing matches going on with myself and the team sure. involved to just you know, figure out the absolute best thing a book like that can be. So things like the statistics tables for the, the, the taverns and the shops where they go like 
wealth and price levels and, you know, the kind of services that are, you know, that, that wasn't there in the beginning. That's something that we came up during development and, you know, how many taverns are we going to include? It's going to be 20. It's going to be five. It ended up being eight, I believe. (laughs) And then we, and then we were like, okay, but the big revelation I think was I had a hunch that you could write a lot more fun things about taverns than what everybody else was doing, which was the standard. Um, and but then when we actually started writing the book, we were amazed even ourselves at just how much more interesting things you could come up with. So the, the book kept getting bigger and bigger and chapters were added like disposition and, you know, what if this the tavern keeper is like a local figure and he has influence over matters in the neighborhood. So we kept discovering more and more as the writers and myself were working on it, like, oh, my God, you know. <laughs> yeah, this needs to be in there and, and this needs to be in there. And if there's going to be menus and drinks, so how about tavern games and, and songs? And so it kept <laughs> growing until we finally had to say, okay, now we need to start making sense of it and, and put some structure to it. And again, that was one of the harder things, just working with, you know, 60,000 words, illustrations and you know, finding a logical flow to the book and the way that chapters flow from one into the other, you know, that, that to me is always the most challenging part. Yeah. And, um, I, for remarkable ends, that was the most grueling, uh, part of the production, just seeing it through to completion again. Uh, it did get easier with, with the next book, remarkable shops, because you have lessons learned. Yeah. There's a workflow in place. You can, base yourself off something that's already existing. But yeah, the, the first one was again, uh, a tough cookie. So out of curiosity now with remarkable ends, if people that back the Kickstarter, they got a choice of either the PDF or the physical book. Is that correct? Uh, yeah. Yeah. And, and how was that the first time that you had produced an actual physical book, a bound book and, and sent it out to, uh, to the world or had you had experience publishing a physical product of that, of that, uh, type before? Well, at that time it was all print on demand. So I was, I was using drive through RPG and, you know, they have a built-in system that people can either buy the digital thing or the physical book, which then gets printed to order basically. Gotcha. Um, so there's no physical inventory in a warehouse sitting somewhere. Uh, and that was really a conscious decision. I was still working at my other company. I hadn't left my, my day job, so to say. Um, yep. And I felt I wasn't really ready to, to commit and invest in, you know, having a thousand or 5,000 or 10,000 books manufactured sitting somewhere on a shelf because then you need packaging materials you need somebody to pick your orders and ship them internationally. Yep. It's just a huge deal. Um, so that was easy for me in the sense that once I had the PDF, you know, the print on the man system takes care of everything else, basically. Um, yeah, so that was an easy way for me to to already provide something more than just digital. But I wasn't full in yet. The hard part yeah. would get to come. <laughs> It's the soft entry, right? And and yeah. obviously, you know, there's there's benefits to taking the risks that you avoided, right? There's benefits to doing a large print run. There's benefits, um, you know, to to doing everything that you avoided um, 
from a margin standpoint, mm-hmm. but um, at the same time, it's also nice to being able to go with what you're comfortable with and avoid the risk. Now, if we go from the Kickstarter launches to you've delivered the Kickstarter, does the shop's book come to life during that time or was it after the last of the uh, fulfillment on uh, the uh, Taverns uh, book? Um, so when does shops become a thing? Actually, quite a bit later, because um, my wife forced me to promise me to never do a book like Remarkable Inns again. Um, (laughs) Like I said, making that book, while fun in hindsight, um, was a very exhausting process. I think um, two years ago, I experienced a pretty heavy burnout. um, And I think at that time, I was already sort of in the burnout without really realizing it. I was having a day job and in the evenings and in the weekends, I was, you know, making a a 100 page book that I've never done before in a quality level, you know, that was high standard, figuring out, you know, tons of new things like how to run a Kickstarter, how to do all that stuff. And after it was finished, you know, and the Kickstarter performed really well, but the 30000 was basically covering my costs. And at the end, there was nothing left, really. Um, so it, it was like a head scratcher, you know, why work a year on a book that, you know, um, that isn't that profitable. Yep. Uh, so my wife was like, you know, you're crazy. Stop. You know, I don't want you ever do something <laughs> like this again. Um and to be continued because she later changed her mind when I did do uh, remarkable shops. But a lot of time went by where I was like, yeah, you know, making a book like this is just too much work. It's too stressful. It's just not worth it. But um, once it was released, remarkable ends started selling like crazy and it did sales numbers that I hadn't really seen up to that point. So it kind of eclipsed all of the maps, all of the adventure modules, all of the stuff I'd done before. It really was eclipsed by Remarkable Inns. Um, so while the Kickstarter, there wasn't really, not really money left in the bank from the Kickstarter itself, the sales were very, very promising. And it sure. keeps selling. it keeps on selling today. And I'm now in the third print run. So amazing. Um, so once I, I think I needed quite a, a long time to recoup myself. I I went through a long period of burnout um, in which I still continued lore smith, but you know, not with the same focus that I would have lo- loved to. And I really remember feeling like I shouldn't, I, I wasn't ready to take on another a huge product project, yeah. like an, another remarkable book. So I kept choosing Kickstarters that were smaller in scope, like the Dungeon Discovery decks, something that I felt didn't involve as much writing, could be done a lot quicker. And that was like mainly a decision based on my health and mental state at the time. <laughs> I bet. Well, the, and I think the whole, the whole Dex concept that you've got there, I think is very interesting. So what we'll do is we'll take a quick break and I want to pick Chris's brain about where the idea of these decks comes from. What need do they fill? Um, and why have they gotten such a buzz in the industry? I'll be right back. 
Howdy friends, here on the third floor you'll find us playing Malifaux and other tabletop games using Mats by Mars. Their mats are scratch resistant, waterproof, wet erase marker compatible, and lighter than neoprene. Their mats use a new material that eliminates almost all glare, which is perfect if you're filming battle reports or you're under some glaring lights. Mats by Mars gives you over 40 designs to choose from. Pick a mat size. Pick a print or design, and then choose an overlay for Marvel Crisis Protocol, Star Wars Legion, or even Malifaux 3rd Edition strats and schemes. The overlays will speed up your deployment and the placement of all of your objective markers. Until the end of September 2020, you can use the new promo code THIRDFLOOR920 to get a 10% discount on your next order. The promo code is in the show notes. When you place your order, don't be afraid to tell Mats by Mars you'd like a Third Floor Wars logo to be put on your mat at no charge. It's the only way to make the best mat in the market even cooler. Again, use the promo code THIRDFLOOR920 to get a 10% discount. All the details are in the show notes. So now we're starting to see the wheels turn a little bit. Um, we also smell some of the smoke. Um, so Chris is now you know, at a point where this book took a lot out of him, but... Um, he's realizing that he is filling a demand that maybe he didn't even fully re- uh, recognize or realize, even at the end of the Kickstarter itself. So, Chris, you mentioned, you know, you start doing the decks. Um, so for those not familiar with it, can you kind of describe the basic concept of these decks that you've been producing? Sure. Yeah, they're called the Dungeon Discoveries decks. There's um, three fantasy ones and three sci-fi themed ones. And the concept is really simple. Uh, in the beginning, I thought, well, gee, this is really simple, you know. Um, and uh, But basically, it's uh, a playing card, a poker card, divided in the top half and the bottom half. And uh, the top half has uh, three entries, like um, word seeds, and the bottom half has them. And, and the idea is that you can combine them in, in any way, really. So... Let me actually grab one real quick. Yeah, please do. So, for example, I, I got a few here. So it, it would say, for example, at the at the top, oddly paired, green ceramic, withering, strangely shaped. And then the bottom half says, scratch marks, empty flask, wildflowers, dwarven chisel. So imagine your players searching the room or, you know, they're rummaging through something and they ask, you know, what do I see? What do I find? And you cannot plan for everything. And maybe there's nothing really key important to the story or the adventure in that room, but the room certainly isn't empty. I mean, come on, it's an old dungeon. There's, there's at least dust, rat droppings, an old chair. There's always, there's always something, but coming up with that something on the fly is challenging, you know? Even if you're a creative guy, you know, you can only come up with so much in, in, in a second. So then, for example, you draw one of these cards and you go like, well, you know, you look through the, the old, you know, debris in the room and you find a withering wildflowers and there's a green <laughs> ceramic empty flask. So now the players... You know, they totally see the picture in their mind. They're like, wow, great, uh, empty green flask. You know, can I smell it? Yeah, sure, you can smell it. So yep. maybe I'll draw another card and um, that describes the smell or the look of it. And the fun thing is there's 
like there's a fumbled searches deck, which basically provides thousands and thousands of junk things, but <laughs> do, do create a lot of detail. But there's also stuff that could be actual real treasure or an art object, or it could be, you know, a MacGuffin for a new adventure, a, a clue for something that they need later. Um, some people use these cards to, to, to provide them ideas for encounter ideas or story ideas. So there, there's a lot of mileage that you can get out of these decks. And I have a lot of GMs reach out to me saying like it totally changed the way they prepare their game. So they prepare and they feel more confident because every time, you know, the players do something, they can rely on drawing a card and having something interesting to say. So, um, I, I will admit they're not the biggest commercial success uh, out of all of my products, but it is one that I'm the most proud of just from a, from a design perspective and um, how it makes the Dungeon Master feel confident. I think that's a very, very important thing for me that it has achieved that. That makes me feel very proud of it. Well, and, I, and we're starting to pick up a theme now, Chris, at this point in the in the life cycle of Loresmith. We're starting to realize what kind of what Loresmith is doing is it sounds like you're trying to give tools to game masters to lighten their preparation load and allow them to work and think on the fly a little bit. Um, and the decks is a perfect illustration of that idea. Now, um, the concept of having, you know, adjectives and nouns and being able to draw that and combine them in any way um, you know, not not the most original th- idea in the world, but compiling it in such a way um, is pretty unique. How do you go about writing that? So, how many? How many? Like, let's talk about the first deck. How many cards are in there? Uh, each deck is fifty cards with eight words uh, per card. Um, so it it was four hundred words that we needed per set. Mm-hmm. Um, so twelve hundred words for the three first decks and. Um, in the beginning, it was very easy. It went lightning fast. So the first, I don't know, half of the cards, we were like, yeah, dust covered and grime covered and, and greasy. You know, you can come up with a lot of adjectives and nouns very quickly. Um, and then, as per usual, things got a little harder to finish because um, the three decks really started to look and sound alike. You know, there's right. there's only so much dust covered and overgrown (laughs) you can do before things start to sound very similar. So it was actually uh, a very hard work for the writers and me to, to keep, you know, peeling off the layers and keep stretching ourselves going into new territory and, and finding interesting stuff that nobody else had done yet in random generators or random tables online. And You know, let me just try and find here, for example, you know, we've got a jar of animal remains, a broken orc teeth, a primitive bone flute, um, a worn out broom, uh, a classic, an arrow quiver. So that's one that's very common. But we, you know, once once we got past the stereotypical stuff and kept kept pushing ourselves that's where the real gold started to emerge. I and bet. we were like, wow, there's again, there's so much possible with it. If we only keep pushing ourselves to go beyond, you know, what everybody else is already coming up with. And, um, but that did take 
quite a bit of work. Again, it was something where early on in the development process, you're like, yeah, we're going to finish this in two weeks. And it turned out to be four months. And right. every deck had like had like five rewrites. And I didn't stop until I was totally satisfied with it. And as much, you know, duplicates and similar stuff was weeded out and it was packed with enough originality as we possibly could. Each of those decks has their own uh, theme as well as their own purpose, right? Yes. Um, so yep. it's not just the, the same thing, more of the same on each deck and over deck. But within a deck, you've got 50 cards that are, are you know, supposed to work together and interchangeable. I'd be interested to know how you made the decisions on what words went to what cards. So what was the thinking and deciding that versus you could have just given a list of a hundred adjectives and a hundred objects, but that's not how you designed this. You specifically oh. relegated it to cards. And I want to understand why. Yeah, that, that only occurred to us about halfway through the development. So we started out with different approaches. I had uh, the writer on this that created played an integral part is uh, he likes to call call himself Elf. Uh, that's not his real name, but um, he's a mystery guy. And, okay. um, but he's like super clever with automated spreadsheets and logic and uh, random generators in general. So he started out by building prototype spreadsheets that could automate certain stuff, categorize, uh, group things, etc. Uh, and what we ended up with is we started with just a bulk creation and just putting it all, all automating it in InDesign so the text would end up on the cards. And mm-hmm. then through cur- curation, so through the various editorial steps, we kept refining it. And that's where we discovered, like, one, it's going to be impossible to guarantee that, that every possible match out of the 50,000 combinations or 40,000 is going to work. You know, some of them sound goofy or, or, you know, there's a few that are just wrong if you happen to combine that one card with the other. And that's when we started to look more per card. So if you look now per card, they kind of go together a little bit more um, as per in-between cards. But what I really like is... Um, if you do end up combining the seats from random cards, the the interesting stuff that you come up with is just so much higher. You know, the right. the happy accidents just become a little bit more interesting. So <laughs> on the cards themselves, they're kind of written to go together a bit and play nice. But the real interesting stuff sometimes comes from just combining things that you just don't could couldn't ever imagine would go together sure you know let me see like okay so um a putrid old hydra skin (laughs) an unpleasant smelling hydra skin uh a fake elven made uh primitive bone flute a fake elven made wedding stone um, a begrimed falconer glove, a moist and moldy falconer glove. I mean, yeah, so this is stuff you, you know, even if you're a genius GM, this stuff you cannot come up with, you know, just by yourself. I mean, I cannot even do it, but we sure. did came up with the cards and now the cards are doing the heavy lifting for you. 
Yeah, and allowing you as the GM to to make things look a lot more real. I mean, it's it's one of the simplest things in the world, um, and it's a habit I've gotten into as a GM, which is writing some names down, um, just generic names to have them at my ready. So when someone goes, well, what you know, I want to I want to talk to that guy. And I'm like, well, okay, I wasn't anticipating that. And they're like, well, what's his name? And I'm like, uh, Jim. You know, no, I've got some you know Star Wars sounding names because we're playing a Star Wars game. Right. Um, yeah. It's taking that to a whole new level, Chris. So it's it's very very clever, and it sounds. Sounds like what these decks did is potentially for you as a business person allowed you to kind of work through the burnout a little bit. Did you, um, is this, did these serve that purpose and um, kind of allow you to recharge the batteries or was this more of a drain on you creatively? No, this was the first product that I actually enjoyed a lot making. So it was a lot more manageable in scope. Uh, there wasn't as much writing involved. The artwork is, you know, you design one card and then you're done, you know, the card front and the card back. So I really enjoyed it a lot. And um, it helps that I think it's just a cool product, has an elegant design. So yeah, I enjoyed it. And the Kickstarter did really well. It raised I think also around a 30,000. So just as much as remarkable ins. So again, that was then at that time, the second Kickstarter that pulled in quite a big figure. Uh, so I was starting to see like a pattern or I, I was hoping <laughs> I was seeing a pattern at right. least. And um, yeah, it did help just to, to blow off some steam to not be tied up with, uh, working on one single book for over a year, nothing else. So that was a, a really some fresh air for sure. I bet. So guys, we're going to take another break and we're going to learn uh, how Chris broke his promise to himself and his wife and started yet another book. So we'll be right back. Hi there, this is Owen from the Nova Open. I am a $5 patron of Third Floor Wars because I love supporting the whole Malifaux community. I want to help Craig and the whole Third Floor Wars team continue making the fantastic content that gets me through my daily commute. You should join me in supporting the show. Just pause this episode, head to patreon.com and search Third Floor Wars or grab the link in the show notes. See you there. What is it worth to you to get this podcast on a weekly basis? Is it worth a dollar a month, $5 a month, $20 a month? If you'd like to help support the work that we're doing here on Third Floor Wars, please go buy our Patreon. We're at patreon.com slash thirdfloorwars. There you can pledge at any level, any dollar amount. Whatever you give us will help us put out quality content on a regular basis and hopefully make tabletop gaming a little bit better for you every week. The reason we're able to bring you this podcast every week, as well as all of the content on our YouTube channel and via our Twitch, is because of the 110 patrons that help support us. I want to give a special shout out to these patrons who are the ones that have given us the most since the start of our Patreon. So big thank you to Nick Westbrook, Craig Chuba, Kevin Smith, Stephen Morris, Sam Newman, James Hahn, Ambrose Ingram, Jeremy Peace, Corin Soles, and Carl Lee. Because of you and the other 100 patrons, we're able to do what we do. Thanks.
So we learned that, um, you know, doing the first book, though, successful, the Kickstarter was successful and the, the sales after the Kickstarter um, were, were really a, a kind of an inspiration and a surprise to Chris. Uh, it also took a took a good bit out of him. Um, and even his wife said, no more. Uh, we're not doing that again. Uh, so then you come up with a great deck concept. Um, it sounds like you had a lot of fun with that, Chris, um, and it allowed you to recharge the batteries. And then something starts to tickle in the back of your head and the dumb idea of doing another book pops up. So talk, walk me through how that happened. Yeah. So at, at one point it, it's like this inevitability, right? So, you know, you've did a product that really, you know, essentially remarkable ends was what really put me on the map. So, you know, that's what people want, you know, I've right. been getting a steady stream of people asking, is there going to be more? And, and I had ideas for more. And really the thing that was holding me back was just, a, you know, the prospect of, yeah, making a book is just intense. You know, no matter how disciplined, no matter how effective you are in, in managing such a project, it's just hard work. And um, so that's what, what was really putting me off. And, you know, a burnout didn't really help. So uh, there were times where I just couldn't even get out of bed. I was, you know, mildly depressed. It was just a struggle and it was very hard on my family as well. Uh, My wife and kids were suffering from my mood swings. So all of that was like, yeah, you know, when, when is it a good time to take on such a monster project again? Um, And, you know, it's just me and a team of hired writers and artists, but, you know, nothing moves unless I make it move. So, and that, that's a pretty daunting prospect. There's no colleagues that can take over, you know, cut you some slack, but okay. So I I did realize that, you know, if I want to turn this from a hobby into a sustainable business, then I got to do it. And I think what, you know, there's at this point, multiple things start to intertwine and they're, they're, you know, so at this point, there's like the multiple things convening uh, to one point. Um, I've been due to the burnout. I was starting to think my time at my then current company was, you know, I should leave my company. Probably I was not enjoying it as much anymore. Um, I wanted to do something where I was in charge. And yep. at the same time, I got in touch with Nord Games, my USA partner, um, uh, now my new USA partner. And their CEO, Christopher, um, he he really liked my products. And he kept saying, like, you know, your stuff is great. It has great quality you know, just keep at it and you can turn this into a business. And I kept telling him that, well, yeah, it's great. It's great hobby money and it's nice side income, but it's never going to be enough to really pay my bills. And at at that time, it wasn't nearly enough income to to live from it month to month. Um, But it was his um, motivation. He was, he kept telling me, you know, just run with it. Just, you know, if anyone can do it, you're the one that can turn this into a business. So I had somebody else telling me, a very experienced business guy, you know, that I should uh, go for it. And 
you know, then it took some time, um, but I ended up, you know, uh, stepping down a shareholder, leaving the other company, um, working through the burnout, you know, seeing a psychologist, just getting my, um, my energy levels back, getting back into a good mental state. And then I felt ready, like, yeah, okay, I, I can do a second book. And, you know, probably the second book is going to be easier because right. we have an established format. Um, we have a workflow, you know, I, I already know kind of what the, the budgets are going to be like to do a book like this. I've already done a Kickstarter, Kickstarter like this. So, yep. I, um, you know, I'll, in a lot of ways, it, it the second time was much, much easier. And it turned out to be so. It was still a lot of work to finish, but it didn't feel as painful as the as the Remarkable Inns book. So I enjoyed making Remarkable Shops a lot more. Um, the book was even bigger page count wise. The production level, again, was, was higher. The Kickstarter was larger in scope. Um, but you know, the experience that started to set in and um, I was already starting to run Lorsmith as a business more with more professional workflows and work ethic. And uh, so, yeah, it ended up being not nearly as painful as I as I thought it was going to be. And then, of course, the Kickstarter raised over $100,000. So <laughs> Remarkable Inns had done 30000 And then yeah. all of a sudden, this one pulled in $100,000. So, And that completely took me by surprise because there's been a long gap between Remarkable Inns and Remarkable Shops. Yep. So I thought, you know, all of the customers I did have have probably moved on to other pastures are now shopping from other companies and they've forgotten about Lorsmith. And then I put the Kickstarter live and it went berserk. And I thought, <laughs> wow, have all these people kind of been waiting at my doorstep for this to, to, to come around? It was, it, I mean, even to this day, I, I really can't understand, you know, people have kept waiting for it for so long and uh, to be, so successful as it has been. It's crazy. Yeah, that is crazy. And it's two things at the same time, I would imagine, Chris. One, it's a just you you have to be humbled and and just amazed and <clears throat> thankful, right? Um, that that people appreciate what you have done and what you've created, and that um maybe even unwittingly you had created a brand loyalty that uh, you until this moment happens, you didn't realize. Now I would imagine the other side of that coin is holy crap, uh, this is a whole new level of pressure now, isn't it? You've got a lot more people now involved that are now customers in, in, in the Kickstarter. Um, I would be interested, um, Chris, for somebody out there that's listening that has never done a Kickstarter, um, for somebody who maybe is thinking about it, um, what are what are things that um, you didn't know that you do now after doing several of these Kickstarters um, that uh, maybe should give somebody a little bit of a heads up, things that they maybe aren't thinking about? Um, it, it's a great question. It's a very multi-layered uh, question as well, or there's a lot to it um, because there's a, as with running a business, uh, Kickstarter has a lot of different skills involved. So um, you have your product idea and then you need a budget for it. You know, how much is going to cost in writing, artwork, uh, hiring a designer, 
whatever you're doing, you need to put together some sort of budget so you know what kind of funding that you're you're needing. Um, yep. And you need to market it. You need to have graphic design so things look great. Um, you need to have skills to work with others unless you're doing it solo. Um, so there's this whole range of skills, you know, how Kickstarter website works, how Kickstarter, how a campaign works, structuring reward tiers, fulfillment, you know, just Kickstarter is like this small ecosystem by itself with, with yep. its own rules and and etiquette. So um, I think the advice is, again, to start small and to just do it. Um, I've now mentored uh, three people, um, including Justin from the Crit Academy, which their Kickstarter Memorable Monsters just finished, I think. And they funded and overfunded. Um, and uh, they, they're saying it's thanks to my advice to them. That's um, great. So I've mentored uh, a couple people doing their first Kickstarter. And it's all about, you know, starting small and you're going to make mistakes. So just accept that there's all of these skills and things that you're doing for the first time. So however much you plan and think about it in advance, there's just stuff that you cannot expect yourself to know. So the only yeah. way to know is to either luckily do it right or to fail. And then the next time you're not going to fail that, that point again, you know, then, you know, you can improve and come back better the next time. So if I look at my Kickstarters, you know, the claws of madness was super small in scope, you know, no stretch goals, print on demand, something very kind of, you know, um, not too complex. And then every yep. time I made the scope a little bit bigger and bigger and more ambitious and you keep adding things, you know, in, in a way that you still feel comfortable that you'll, you're either going to figure it out and run with it, or, you know, you can, you know, deliver quality and, and get, get it done. And that's also the reason why I took a long time to really introduce physical goods and my own inventory manufactured stuff that only happened quite late in the game uh, with, you know, the dungeon discoveries was the first time that I moved away from print on demand and did physical goods. So uh, yeah, but Kickstarter is like this whole topic. I could, I would like I, to I do, probably like could a do a couple podcasts. video series on yeah. it, just yeah. diving into every topic. So let's let's before we step away from it because I agree I could do a, a, a there's I mean there's podcasts dedicated to Kickstarter right yeah yeah um so uh, that was a nice big fat question I just threw in your lap so that was <laughs> nice of me so let let's try something a little bit more specific so uh, the Kickstarter that just finished that you helped mentor it it was uh, was it Memorable Monsters was that the name of it yes Memorable Monsters by the Crit Academy right Crit Academy so in the process of you mentoring them um, can you think of one bullet that they dodged because you stood in front of it and helped help prevent it. So what was a path they were headed down where you're like, no, you, you don't want to do this because I've made this mistake. It's been many few small things and, but small things can cause large problems. So yep. for example, they came to me with, with a hugely ambitious plan with stretch goals and like this whole thing you see with companies that have already done it a few times and know how it works. So my first tip was, you know, what is the most minimal viable form of this Kickstarter and book that you still feel proud of and that you think you can actually pull off? 
and then bring down the scope. And um, that helps bring down the budget that lowers yep. the funding goal that you're going to you know, need to shoot for and able to be uh, to be successful. And that's what they did. And I think it, you know, they funded. So there's never knowing what it would happen if they didn't lower the scope. But I sure. think based on the funding goal that they achieved, it was a, a smart move to to simplify things into something that they could manage the first time because um, they came back to me telling, you know, yeah, Chris, you were right. This is so much more complex <laughs> and there's so much involved that we just didn't have a clue about. And now we have this pledge manager backer kit and it, it's amazingly complex to configure and you're bombarded with stuff that you don't really have a clue about. So don't make yourself too difficult to try and chew it off all at once. As a consumer of Kickstarters, Chris, I've, I've backed uh, an embarrassing number of Kickstarters. Um, just the backerlet piece is obviously a, a uh, an unex- unanticipated um, challenge because I have had so many Kickstarters where they're like, we're, we're struggling. We're trying to get through the backerlet or there's been an issue with the backerlet or we're doing it. And that's, that's something that I think to your point, you have to go through this a few times before you understand what that is. Yeah. And um, I like the small pieces and I like, I like the, the, uh, the two aspects of your advice, which is one, go do it. So yeah, don't, don't just talk about it. Just go and do it and either succeed and fa- or fail. But kind of finding that balance between go and do it and then also try to minimize right. the amount of failure, the level of failure. You got to accept that there's going to be stuff that's going wrong or you didn't anticipate. Uh, that's good because that's where yeah. you learn. All the stuff that yep. does go well, you don't learn from it. Um, but you do have to sort of minimize you know, is it going to be a small train wreck or is it going to be a huge train wreck? You know, but there's going to be stuff that, you know, you're going to be pulling your hair out. Sure. Uh, Just, you know, somewhat manage it. Uh, (laughs) Yeah. And how experienced are you at putting out the fires, right? The first time you've never done it before, but you know, it's, you can handle a lot more fires and a lot larger fires if you've done it a few times. Yeah. So speaking of doing it for a few times, Chris, um, we are recording this on a Monday. Um, and we'll be releasing it. Normally I record several weeks in advance, but we're going to release this tomorrow, um, just in time before your next Kickstarter ends. So I want to talk about wondrous expeditions with you. So we're going to take a quick break and learn, um, what is this new culmination of all of these great experiences, success, failures, and learnings that has led to, uh, Chris's latest book. We'll be right back. Howdy friend, Craig here. Is this episode making you realize you need to buy some models? Gadzooks Gaming is my favorite online retailer because of their large selection, killer prices, and great customer service. Don't you hate buying an entire crew box when you only need one model? Gadzooks sells crew box models individually and saves you a ton of money. They even have free shipping to the US and Canada if you spend $100 or more. Swing by gadzoopsgaming.com and make sure you tell them Craig from the third floor sent you. All the details are in the show notes.
So Chris is in the uh, final days now of his most recent um, Kickstarter. It's going to end um, on the Thursday after the release of this episode. So on the 10th of uh, September, uh, 2020. And um, it's called Wondrous Expeditions. And first of all, Chris, let's talk about where the idea of this book comes from. The idea comes from wanting to diversify Lore Smith's product range. So at this point in time, it kind of evolved that I'm doing system neutral-ish books, really source books for GMs or tools that help game masters run their games easier or prepare for them. And uh, Remarkable Inns and Remarkable Shops have been my most successful products. Um, so, and I'm going to do more of them, but I realized I didn't want to only do that kind of book forever until I'm 80 years old. So I started to think, you know, what else is fun to cover? And the remarkable books are sort of indoorsy, um, you know, taverns, shops. So I started thinking about, okay, let's go outside. Let's explore the wilderness. And I like to think of my products, you know, I don't mind doing one-offs, but product development is very expensive, both in money and time. So if if possible, I like to come up with something. And if the first one is successful, I like to be able to do more. Um, and that's really how it came together that I started to think about. And I think it, initially it was called something like um, Fantastic Journeys or something like mm -hmm. that. Uh, like a working title and it will be so you know wondrous expeditions forests wondrous expeditions deserts islands mountains marshes and uh, so that that's how it came to be um the general idea and then we started refining it to what it is what you're seeing on the kickstarter now and i think what really shines through if you look at it and that's also the feedback that i'm getting is it's the 10th uh, Kickstarter uh, by me, Laura Smith, and all of the lessons learned, all of the experience from the previous books, the Kickstarters sort of culminated. And, you know, this is the first time that I have actual, you know, stretch goals planned in advance. There's extra products to unlock. There's bundles. There's this, it's this whole, you know, thing. And, um, yeah, that's just something that I, I wouldn't have been able to do when I just started out. And it just shows how every time you learn a little bit and you take it on to the next. And um, yep. uh, yeah, it's, again, it's now currently at 100,000 euros. So with, um, you know, 70 hours left on the clock, it's probably it, it's going to be the most successful Kickstarter for me to date which is again, very humbling and, and <laughs> crazy, bet. but yeah, that's, how, that's how that idea came, came about. So what, what problem, the thing that I kind of like about your products that we've talked to up to this point, Chris, is each of them kind of uh, identified a problem and helped solve it. Right. Yeah. Um, what problem does wondrous expedition solve in your mind? It's all about, you know, in conversations with, with players and dungeon masters, they would a lot of the times they would say, well, well, you know, there's an adventure and we need to get to this dungeon. So let's do like a, a skip to the next dungeon or do a, a short travel montage, maybe roll for a, a nighttime encounter during your, when your players have set up camp, but everybody was basically trying to speed through or skip ahead to 
to the adventure, to the next good bit. And I was like, well, you know, look at Lord of the Rings, look at the Hobbit. The the journey is the adventure. So why is yeah. everybody trying to skip it? Uh, that I found very interesting. And another thing, and that's much more analytical and not, you know, mysterious or creative. I learned with my other companies, the value of doing customer surveys. So over the course of Lorsmith, I've done, I think, 20 or 25 customer surveys about a ton of topics, and they typically generate 400 to 600 um, entries, which wow. is like this treasure trove of information, and it's very insightful. So, for example, I will ask my customer base what they think need, the next remarkable book needs to be. You know, what do you want to be it about? Or and we did this whole survey asking people about you know what what is what do you think is a challenging most challenging thing of running games or what would you like to see you know what is a problem that you are having during game night and that you would love to solve um, and a lot of the the product ideas that I still have and are upcoming for because I have a planning up to twenty twenty two at this moment. Already Very nice. Out, uh, because of the development timelines are so long. Um, but a lot of these product ideas come from the survey information from our actual customers saying, you know, this is what I struggle with. This is something that I'm not good at at my games or I know my players like, but I don't know how to go about it. So, yeah, that's a lot of it was informed by stuff coming out of, out of our customer satisfaction surveys. Uh, I'm a data guy. That's how I, I make a living um, is, is with data. And, you know, having data like that from people that have actually spent money with you is extremely valuable, especially if you know how to leverage it, which it sounds like it does. But I'm going to tell you what it looks like from the customer side, because before you were a guest, you, uh, you were, I was your customer. Um, and I noticed the surveys. Um, and, um, there was a tone in the surveys that I don't know if it's intentional or not, but what I, what happened to me as a customer is I suddenly felt like I was part of something. I felt like I was now in the lore Smith ecosystem, which I found very interesting. Um, so even though I, um, have not been running fantasy based, um, role-playing games. So a lot of your products right now really didn't fit my needs, right? Um, it specifically the maps did, right? And right. I'm, yeah. and I've already lined up to get uh, the sci-fi cards um, because I, because I, uh, the games I'm running are science fiction based. But what was neat for me though, is that when I started getting the surveys, I felt like um, it felt like I just, I, I wasn't just a, a, a customer vendor relationship right. that, that there was something, there was something that I was now becoming a part of, which is uh, something that companies strive to do. Um, it's something it's feeling done and whether it was intentional by you or not, Chris, it was, it's something that has happened. I, I think it's intentional. Yeah. Um, but what's surprising to me is that people find it that surprising. So for me, it's, it's totally natural. You know, I think it, it's the best thing you can do as a company is to, to open up and really, you know, have a dialogue with your customers or potential customers, make them part of what you are doing. But, yeah. um, and, but it, 
it's very surprising to see that many companies just don't do this. It's like, you know, the, it's that front facade, you know, they, they have their website and if there's a new book out, they have a new book out, but you know, the rest is like this black box and you don't hear from them for, for a year. Um, and I think that's a shame. So, you know, my discord server, uh, it, it's not huge, but you know, um, I, I really like the interaction part. And whenever I get the chance, I ask there and on my Facebook and through the surveys, you know, what do you guys think of this? You know, what should we do? Um, and I really appreciate the creative ideas, sometimes left field ideas that come <laughs> out of it. You know, there's plenty of times where, you know, my customers have better ideas than the ones that I have. And I think other companies may feel too precious about it or, right. you know, it's pretty scary collaborating with a community because essentially it's giving away a portion of the control over something. And, but to me, it doesn't feel scary because if I don't want to do something, I won't do it. But <laughs> if I think it's a better idea or it makes a lot of sense to do so, then sure. Why not listen to somebody else, you know? So for me, it feels completely natural, but it's surprising that people find it so that it doesn't happen more often, apparently. Well, it doesn't, you know, it does, but it doesn't, right? So there's companies that do it. There's companies that try to do it and fail. Um, and then there's other situations where, um, you know, like I said, before you and I started talking, I knew, I noticed there was something different. It was part of the, probably the big driver of why I wanted to have you on the show. Um, so it's nice to know that it's deliberate um, uh, for that. So uh, guys, um, this has been great, uh, Chris. Um, I find it very interesting to hear really that entire lifespan from uh, my day job to, wow, I'm, I've got my 10th Kickstarter out there over, uh, you know, hitting six figures. Um, that's exciting. Um, for those of you listening, you can still take advantage um, of that wondrous expeditions. Even if the Kickstarter is over, it's going to be something that uh, Chris will have available later, just like his other books. Um, I'm a huge fan, like I said, of the map packs. Um, so if anybody who is doing virtual tabletop out there, um, just buy them. Um, because they're phenomenal and uh, very easy to use um, and uh, surprisingly organic. Um, I've put together several maps that I've used, and when it's done, it doesn't look like they were tiled. Um, so hats off on that. Um, Chris, is there any other last things that uh, we want to get out there before we wrap up? Gee, well, currently what's on my mind is actually the future. So the, the whole COVID thing really threw a wrench. So everybody was sort of disoriented for a while, and then – started regrouping and looking ahead. Um, yeah. And I've learned that a uh, crisis is usually the best moment to reinvent yourself. So um, the past six months have actually, for me, been all about a lot of behind the scenes stuff that people will only realize in the future. Uh, so That's I've been exciting. looking uh, about two, three years ahead in, in, in the future, which sounds crazy. But, and one of the things is, you know, we've talked about how things evolve from a hobby and then realizing, okay, the, I, you know, with the right amount of attention and looking at it as a business instead of a hobby, you can change something into a commercial success. Um, and, you know, the next step now for me is to, to reorganize Lorsmith into the business that I want it to be the coming five to 10 years, because right now, essentially, 
it's still very much a one-man show and nothing moves if I don't tell the writers to go write something. Sure. And that just doesn't scale up very well. So I'm now <laughs> in the process of, and that's scary for me because I've been involved in every single detail in every step of the development process of all products. And so I'm also, you know, the biggest bottleneck in all of it. Sure. You know, taking so much time. Like, why does a book take a year? Well, it's because of me um, <laughs> and, and the quality I strive for. But, yeah. you know, um, I'm now laying the groundwork and I'm starting to train, um, you know, s- somebody who I already work with to take over part of my role. Um, so I'm going to delegate a lot of the development to uh, a new team member. Um, probably going to hire uh, more people for the first time. And so it's all about laying the ground for work for a real, true business structure that can, you know, do multiple products per year. Uh, right. Because right now I'm just at sort of the maximum of what I can do as one person while still having a family and, and hobbies. You know, we I can do two Kickstarters, finish two products a year if I push it. But that's going to be it. And I want to be able yep. to do more. So a lot of it now is thinking about, you know, how to scale up the company in, in a good way. And another thing, but that's just very, very vague. But uh, <laughs> Lorsman is probably going to do something with charity as well. So this is not. Oh, something, that's fantastic. Um, it's not very, very specific just yet, but it's this one wish for me that. You know, sure, I want to make a living and it's very cool to see something grow financially. But what I really like doing is just helping others, being a mentor to others and uh, giving something back. So I'm working on two plans. One of them is to, to somehow tie in Lorsmith in a meaningful way with a charity. Uh, and another thing is a mentorship program where I'm going to mentor uh, a limited amount of people or starting companies to yep. to do their own first Kickstarter or to help them with their challenges and making products. So that's something that I really want to get uh, rolling in the next year. Um, as of course, uh, probably a new remarkable book and more stuff <laughs> that you can expect from us. So yeah, that, that's currently where, where my brain is at. Ah, that's very exciting. And um, boy, it's a it's a very critical part, Chris, um, for Laura Smith, because um, this is this is a big decision maker um, for you. What you have done up to this point has been successful and it's worked um, despite the challenges. But part of that is uh, not part of it. It's because of you. Right. It's been a one person shop. And for you now to make that decision to uh, expand beyond that because it doesn't scale um, is is uh, is a big one. So I wish you the best of luck um, on that. Um, and it does mean, of course, that you're going to have to come back on the show. Um, and we'll talk about uh, the oh, next... No, uh, not um, again. <laughs> yeah. We'll talk about the next thing that your wife told you you'd never do, but you're going to do it anyway. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. Um, uh, but I do appreciate it, Chris. And like I said, I've got links to everything in the show notes, um, including the products that I personally have used, um, the products I've heard well about, and I'll link to the Kickstarter. Um, it's definitely worth checking out. And for those that stuck around to the end to listen, we appreciate it. Take care. Be sure to follow us on Facebook, Twitter, YouTube, and Twitch so you don't miss uh, the avalanche of content we create. Links are in the show notes. 
Be sure to check out our shop on thirdfloorwars.com for the latest in gaming apparel and gear. There you'll also find the latest information for the USFO Tour. Find out where you rank in your conference or even in the entire United States. Get those models built, painted, and ready so we can see you at the next USFO Tour Masters event. Please take a moment to write a review of this pod on your favorite platform. Rating and reviewing helps us find more listeners almost as cool as you are. Be sure to share this feed with all of your friends who love tabletop gaming. Thanks for listening. Howdy folks, Craig here. Now if you love gadgets as much as we do, you're going to love the new Third Floor Wars Gadget Bundle from Schooner Labs. Branded with the logo of your favorite podcast, it comes with two measuring multi-tools, a compass stepper for those tight and important movements, along with a compact dashboard to track your turn, strat, and scheme scoring along with your soul stones and pass tokens. It is the perfect bundle for anyone who plays Malifaux or just wants to look cool while doing it. The link is in the show notes. Check them out and help support your favorite gaming podcast. All right. This is way too much fun. It'll be sad when it's over. (laughs) (laughs) So you, uh, and it closes Thursday, right? Uh, yes. I'm not sure what time, but it's, I think, uh, I, think I thought saw the 10th was when it closed. I have, a, yeah, I feel bad. Is. I should have yeah. had that in front of me. All right. All right. So we'll, we'll talk about the 10th. Um, and, uh, we'll, we'll do a similar, I'll probably do a similar thing with wondrous expeditions that we did with the other books. Uh, cause I think it's very interesting to hear, um, how that all comes together. <laughs> all right. So we'll talk about shops. Okay, nice one. And uh, You're very good at, at uh, tying these things back in. I love it. <laughs> oh, I'm glad. <laughs> Thanks, man. Very, very sweet. Uh, yeah. Try to keep it interesting, right? I'm fascinated by this stuff. Um, and uh, the uh, the podcast starts started off two years ago as strictly a Malifaux tabletop wargaming podcast, but um, it's it's grown um, mm. to cover a lot more things and this insider insight stuff that I'm doing talking to people like you uh, it's just fascinating to me um, that, that creative process so this is this is going as well as I had hoped and I appreciate you making the time yeah I like doing it as well so uh, yeah good my pleasure good. all right so uh, we're gonna come back and talk about the birth of the next book so I think what we'll do if you're okay with this Chris is I'm gonna talk decks then I want to go uh, into the shops. Sure. And then then we'll take a break and go into uh, expeditions. How does that sound? Yeah, great. All right. So I'll bring us back talking about the decks. All right. See, changing things up. Um, so, yeah, we'll talk about the decks. Um, and I'll probably just keep incorporating the challenges of running a game company. I, I don't think that's its own segment, so I'm going to scrap that out of the outline. It, it's kind of interwoven in the whole thing. It, right? it really is. Yeah. Let, me, uh, same, let me refill my water. Please, go ahead. <laughs> I'm so croaky today. I'm, I'm not sure what's wrong. <laughs> that's all right, man. All right. That was excellent, my friend. Thanks. Yeah. <laughs> I right. keep having this <clears throat> Barry White voice. Um. You can cut out the coughs, right? Yeah, I'll take care of it and edit. Don't worry about that. All right.
Um, and that's that's also true if for some reason, though, I, you know, I, I don't see it happening. But if for some reason you say something, Chris, and you're like, oh, Craig, I prefer that not to be on there. Just tell me live and I'll go right. back and edit it sure. out. So if, yeah, no worries. You, you, you call, no call your uh, no. call somebody a name <laughs> that you didn't want to call a name or something like that. Sure. <laughs> All right. All right. So what I'll do is I'll bring us back, Chris, and I'm going to kind of build off where we started with the module. Okay. 